Welcome to Shelter in Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, live streaming and Zooming with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, here in our 22nd episode, now more than five months into this shelter in place. For this 22nd episode, our 22nd weekly uninterrupted episode, we are joined by three terrific guests to take up the theme of knowing your enemy, grasping in theory and in practice the true nature of the right-wing threats that we face in this country and beyond. We'll be joined by three speakers I will mention and describe in a moment, uh, but I want to thank our sponsors, Socialism and Democracy, Hardball Press, and Cuentro Cinco, Community Church of Boston for making this all possible, this 22-week run. Recent years have seen a resurgence of right-wing nationalism and authoritarian political movements from Trump in the United States to Bolsonaro's movement in Brazil to Modi in India. How are we best to grasp the nature of these contemporary political trends? Is Trump and the movement to support him usefully understood as a form of neo-fascism, right-wing populism, something else? In what sense do these labels matter? What are the political, economic, social, and cultural drivers of this trend? And how can they most effectively be countered and defeated? How does contemporary right-wing authoritarianism compare with classic fascist movements of the past? What lessons for today can be found in the arsenal of historical anti-fascism and the archive of anti-fascism and what needs updating? Well, how does the way we think about the threats we face shape the necessary political response? How can grasping the roots of the current right-wing movements help us to build the movement to defeat them from, from the ballot box to the workplace, to the streets and beyond? To help us plumb these and other related questions, we have a great trio of guests, two who are co-authors of the recent US anti-fascism reader. And here I mean Chris Viles and Bill Mullen both of whom have published extensively on questions of progressive, radical, and socialist movements, anti-fascist movements, anti-fascist currents of the past and the present together. Uh, Bill uh, Mullen and Chris Viles will be joined also by Bill Fletcher. Bill Fletcher, who has been on uh, Shelter and Solidarity before. Welcome back, Bill. Um, Bill is a uh, is a longtime activist, labor organizer, author, novelist, and uh, contemporary social critic who, who has written recently on the theme of right-wing authoritarianism, as well as the way in which settler colonialism has shaped and created obstacles and limits to the US labor movement. Uh, we've had Bill here on a great show before discussing the question of labor and policing and, this, and, the, and the recent rebellions across this country. Uh, first off, I just want to check in and make sure everybody's uh, audio is working, Hill. Here, uh, Bill, Chris, and Bill, welcome to Shelter and Solidarity. Thank Thanks for having us on. Great. Good to be on the program. Great. As it always on in Zoom world, we can only see you when we hear you. So that goes for everyone. If you don't want to be seen, please don't be heard. For those who are a part of our live audience and those who do want to be heard, please uh, do you want to be seen? Please make sure we can hear you by unmuting yourself. Okay, 
Uh, so uh, Bill, Chris, and Bill, we have a double Bill special today here. Um, I want to uh, just open with a kind of broad question that allows you to talk about your take on this kind of contemporary moment we're in, and also the work that you've been doing. I know you've all worked on issues that are very explicitly contemporary, analyzing the current conjuncture, the current situation, as well as more historical work that is seeking out you know, lessons and examples from the past, both of right-wing analyzing right-wing threats and looking at progressive left, radical, or even revolutionary responses to um, whether you call it right-wing authoritarianism or fascism or neo-fascism. I'd just like to pitch you a broad question to kind of give you a chance to weigh in on what is your sense of this contemporary moment we're in, in the United States, but perhaps globally as well. Um, this specter of Trump and Trumpism, uh, the election that's on the horizon, uh, but certainly uh, not, none of you confine your notion of politics to the electoral realm either. So uh, I'd like to just pitch you that general question to like, what is the moment we're in? You know, what is the threats we, what are the threats we face? And what work, you know, what of the work you've done seems particularly relevant to this moment that you would like to kind of uh, lift up for, for those who are tuning in with us today on this 22nd episode on of Shelter and Solidarity. Why don't we start with, uh, Chris, you're, you're somehow lighting up on my screen here. So let's go to Chris and Chris, and then uh, either Bill can jump in uh, after that. Okay, well, thanks again. Thanks for having us on. And I like the fact that you kind of threw out right-wing authoritarianism, right? Because right-wing authoritarianism is, is used by some scholars of, you know, fascism and, you know, the right as kind of a broader category that encompasses fascism and more kind of classic dictatorships, quote unquote, what Trotsky called Bonapartism, you know, what you might you put like, you might put in like, a, you know, a, you know, a Pinochet's Chile or something like this, where it's more, you know, just elites using um, the state and authoritarian means to their own power. Fascism is a little bit more driven by, it tends to be at least the historical fascist states and fascist movements arguably today too, tend to be driven more by middle class like white folks or middle class folks in you know, non-European um, parts of the world too, that are kind of driven more by a warrior code, toxic masculinity, racism, um, more than you know, elites preserving their own power. But it's important to note that even in fascism, the fascist states, those middle class movements, middle class driven movements wouldn't have gotten anywhere without elite and rich enablement, right? Um, every step of the way and conservative enablement, right? So. You know, at least what we wrote in the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader was that, you know, in thinking about the current moment of Trump, um, not last week, but Trump more broadly, is that um, Trump has not really been able to, to convert the United States into a fully fascist state right? Um, we wouldn't be having this conversation <laughs> if that was the case. Um, but he, and he doesn't really command a coherent fascist, like a unified fascist movement, right? That's, you know, like something equivalent to, um, you know, uh, the Nazi party or uh, Mussolini's, um, you know, PNF. But it's basically what he has 
what he is, he represents a kind of a, a fascist rhetoric, a fascist personality. He brings together all the effective registers of fascism, um, including, you know, this, uh, this warrior driven or male violence driven ethos, right? Um, this uh, lack of introspection whatsoever, um, the kind of, you know, what we might call the, the toxic masculinity, the racism, the visceral racism, all of the kind of the language of uh, nation, action, violence, power, race, right? Um, that is the hallmark of every kind of, you know, fascist leader, right? Um, even though he probably has no idea what historic fascism is, although there is some evidence that he had it passed down to his family, like his dad was at a, you know, was popped at a, busted at a Klan rally back in the 20s, after all. But, um, you know, so what that's the danger that Trump represents, however, is that even though he doesn't command a fascist state, he hasn't been able to convert it into that, um, also because he's just very inept, right? Um, so the danger, though, is that, you know, somebody who has a fascist register, somebody who does have fascist politics, um, or, or fascist mentality um, did get elected, you know, granted, not by the popular vote, but close enough. And, and fascists tend to not, at least in the historical fascist state, didn't get, um, you know, majority votes either. They don't, fascists don't come to power after they win elections. They tend to come to power if they lose elections, right? You know, so in that, in that sense, um, what even, even if, and I'm saying if, if, if Trump does not get reelected, we still need to be incredibly vigilant because, you know, what we need to be mindful of, too, is a Trumpism after Trump, right, where what do you, what happens if you do have somebody who is more disciplined, who is like read as a man of honor, maybe an ex-military person, you know, somebody who brings all those politics, but is just left inept, then we've got a real, real, pro that then, then we might be looking at somebody who is um, much more successful in turning the United States into a more general fascist state. Thanks for that, Chris. Uh, that's really a, a wonderful uh, rundown, and I can't I can't recommend uh, the book uh, the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader enough. And I particularly value not only the archive that you, Chris and Bill, uh, you have assembled, Bill Mullen, but but your in, your editor's introduction, I think, and and the way you introduce the particular pieces, I think, is is very useful in historicizing and making clear like the the kind of underlying forces that that shape this this kind of neo-fascist kind of tendency, even if it's a level of rhetoric and personality more than the state or party at this point, although I suppose the, the jury may be out on the Republican Party on, on, on some of these issues. Um, Bill, what would you add to your co-author's take? I know you've done a lot of work on these issues yourself. You're by no means limited to this reader, a new book out on James Baldwin, uh, which I recommend as well. Bill, what's your take on this, the moment we're in, and Bill Mullen, I should say, and, um, and, and your work's relationship to it? Yes, thanks, Joe. Um, I agree with a lot of what Chris has said. And I guess I'd add two dimensions to the moment we're in. One is, you know, fascism historically is a response to some kind of capitalist crisis. And U.S. capitalism and, and world capitalism, actually, has been in a pretty prolonged crisis since at least 2007, 2008. And I think we began to see the kind of lineaments of uh, the possibilities of a kind of popular authoritarianism from below, which took the form in the late 2000s and early aught teens of groups like the Tea Party. Um, we began to see the resurgence of white nationalism. We began to see 
uh, a kind of appeal of, of white resentment and disenfranchisement, which actually was to some extent real after 2007, eight, the kind of, you know, the financial meltdown, the foreclosing of properties, the bankruptcies. Um, the working class has been in crisis uh, since 2007, 2008. Uh, and shortly thereafter, the middle class, and, and Chris was you know, right to point out that the middle class has always been really critical backbone to the establishment of any kind of a you know, fascist or proto-fascist movement, as well as the, what we call, you know, Marx is called the petty bourgeoisie, the small business owners. And it's kind of important just to flash forward to, you know, what we just saw in Kenosha, that people like Kyle Rittenhouse thought it was import, important enough to drive all the way from Illinois to uh, Kenosha with a gun to defend private property, to defend businesses, right? This is a classic kind of, kind of fascist move, uh, a kind of popular defense of property uh, 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 and, and the business class, right? So I think we need to kind of see the trajectory from 2007 to, to what is obviously the most recent, you know, super capitalist crisis, which was which COVID precipitated, right? And it's 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 not. We really should not underscore the extent to which COVID has again given resurgence to white nationalism, denialism, fundamentalisms, uh, along with you know on top of a new massive capitalist crisis and wave of unemployment. So that cocktail, I think, has within it some of the elements that we're actually now seeing as the emergence of a, a, a real street bullying, thuggish, gang, fascist kinds of po political formations that have been creeping into the U.S. very much, particularly since 2016. And I don't think it's accidental, you know, that, that Richard Spencer was in Washington just a month after Trump's election, trying to really, you know, rally literally the, 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 a new fascist movement. Um, and we've seen you know, groups like American Vanguard, we've seen the Proud Boys, we've seen Patriot Prayer, We've seen a whole bunch of grouplets carrying pretty overtly neo-fascist politics out of that moment of 2016. And they're the ones obviously who were, have been critical in, in places like Portland. Uh, Proud Boys are actually having a huge public rally there on September 26th. And they're, they're inviting exactly the movement that they've helped create, which is the anti-fascist movement uh, back into the streets. Um, so, so I think those are some of the dimensions I see, but I do see them as part of this longer capitalist crisis that we obviously have not come out of. And it's probably unlikely that we're gonna come out of, of the resurgence of, of proto-fascist thinking until, we, until that crisis takes another shape. And in, in classical terms, we kind of see this moment as a moment where you know, we can go left or we can go right. And, and it's, we probably should talk about the way that during the same period I'm describing, in addition to kind of neo-fascist thinking, Socialism has made a gigantic comeback. It really is, in a certain way, like we are reliving the 1920s and the 1930s, a side of capitalist crisis splitting uh, social vision into two bifurcated parts, which are kind of at war with each other. And I like we should talk about that because I think we should not ignore at all uh, the, the 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 convergence of these two things, right? That fascism and socialism have actually. Uh, 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 risen together again, especially over the last 10 years in the United States. The second thing I want to add, and I think other people on this panel would ha have a lot to say about this too. You know, if we go back to the killing of Trayvon Martin and the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, 
it began a war over the role of the police in this country. Uh, the police have always played a critical role in sustaining and buttressing any kind of fascist movement. We know that historically the cops, many cops have been fascist. You know, go back to the 19th century, they might've been in the Klan. Um, this backing the blue current, which Trump has really obviously not only campaigned on, but helped to, to, uh, to advance, is a really fundamental part of this. And, it's, and it's, I think it's critical that it was around questions of racial violence, right? Black Lives Matter raised the specter of the police as an armed body of men, as Lenin called them, representing the state who were willing to murder black people. Um, that is part of the split. The split of left and right is around this absolutely critical issue, but critical to understanding what might be or what might not become fascism. That is to say, what does what is the relationship of white supremacy to policing? We, we're discussing that every single day now, right? What is the, the what is the relationship between the police and the state and, a, and an authoritarian rule? We're discussing that every single day now. And happily, we have the most vibrant resistance to the cops that we've seen in this country since at least the 1960s, right? But that resistance is also a, 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 a different kind of vision. It recognizes the possibilities of a violent state of right-wing uh, 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 power that has to be challenged and confronted everywhere, not just in the ballot box, which is where the way people were doing it when they elected Obama, but in the streets. And this new anti-fascist fighting force, you know, I just want to remind people uh, about what a week after Charlottesville, I think Joe in, in, your, in your place in Boston, and 50,000 people came out in the streets suddenly after Heather Heyer was killed to, to, to march against fascism. We haven't seen that since the 1930s, right? We're seeing that, the, the lineaments of that movement. We've seen a generation of young Americans, black, white, multiracial, gay, straight, right, trans, won to anti-fascist politics during this period, you know, because of Black Lives Matter, because of the rise of Trump, because of the rise of white supremacy. Um, and many of them happen to be socialists, as it turns out. So for me, this is, this is a, uh, it's both, you know, could kind of be Gramscian about it. Uh, there's reasons for optimism and pessimism here. Uh, and I think the, the optimism that I take out of this particular moment is that I haven't seen this many Americans ready to defy capitalism, defy the state and defy the police in, in my lifetime. Uh, and, and I take a lot of hope from that. But I'll stop there. Thank you, Bill. Now, I, I appreciate you, uh, in, you know, making sure that we don't talk about neo-fascism or right-wing authoritarianism without also recognizing that there has been a swelling of, of some sorts of leftist sentiment and activity, right? Um, and so we have a situation where it seems like the center cannot hold, as you know, as Yates once once put it, right? In a different context, uh, his own politics bracketed um, for his poetry. Um, and so we shouldn't lose track of that and just be talking about politics as if it's simply a matter of reaction to the reactionaries, right? Uh, and so I think that's a very useful thing at, this, at the outset of this discussion. Let's bring in Bill Fletcher. Bill, I mean, what's your sense of the moment that we're in, uh, particularly as it relates to the threats, um, but also perhaps opportunities that are that are created by this, uh, what you have referred to as right, I think, believe as a right-wing authoritarianism. Um, and, uh, you know, you've been working on this yourself for, for years in various ways. So what's your take on the moment we're in, Bill? 
So um, thanks, Joe. Let, let me thank uh, you and Saren and, and uh, Tim. Uh, and Tim, I want to just give credit to as uh, my publisher of my novel. Um, I also want to acknowledge the work of uh, Chip Berlay and Matthew Lyons, both of whom wrote the must read right wing populism in America and um, the work of the political research associates. And I'm also, when it comes to fascism, very much influenced by the work of Nikos Poulantzas and his book, uh, Fascism and Dictatorship, which um, I've read twice. And uh, I don't normally read nonfiction twice. Uh, I recommend it highly. Um, so I start by saying that there's a specter haunting the world, and the specter is that of right-wing populism. Uh, and that it is a global phenomenon. The, uh, the um, godfathers of it are in many ways Trump and Putin. Um, but it is not something that is as yet tied together by the, uh, something analogous to the Axis powers, the so-called anti-commentary pact. There are um, various kinds of alignments that have taken place, however. And what's really important is, is ideological, uh, ideological alignments among right-wing populists. Fascism is a subset of right-wing populism. Right-wing populism is a phenomena which is um, rooted in the notion of the people versus the elite. But the, the key question is, who are the people? And so from the standpoint of right-wing populism, uh, the people are normally defined ethnographically. Um, and the, it is a misogynist movement, thoroughly racist and xenophobic, militaristic, very authoritarian, both in terms of its um, long-term objectives as well as the way it's organized. In fact, it sounds a lot like the Jim Crow South. Now, I say that for a very particular reason, which is that the fears that are justifiable that have accompanied the rise of Trump, many people have looked to Europe uh, for analogies to our situation, looking at Mussolini or the rise of Hitler. And I think it's really important to look at the United States and look at the rise of Jim Crow segregation and what actually the South and the Southwest look like for a large part of the 20th century and the latter half of the 19th century. Um, we were talking about one-party regimes, highly authoritarian, extrajudicial extra violence, um, uh, an incredible manipulation of race. Um, and, and so one of the things I would say is that right-wing populism is, uh, I always like to say, right-wing populism is the herpes of capitalism. That, that within the system of capitalism, there is this virus. And when the system weakens, you tend to see the rise or the emergence of right-wing populism. And, uh, and, when it, and, and depending on the nature of the crisis, there's certain manifestations of right-wing populism. So um, when there's a financial crisis, 
right-wing populism uh, tends to be highly anti-Semitic. They go Jew hunting, trying to identify who the Jews are that were behind the, the financial crisis. Um, right-wing populism, as Chip and uh, Matthew pointed out, is to a great extent a response, uh, sort of a counteroffensive to the, the advances that have been made by popular movements. So I start there because one of the things on the left is that we have a tendency to identify, and I'm not, this is not a criticism of Chris or Bill, because I, frankly, I just want to start by saying I agree with their, what they were laying out. But much of the left has this tendency to identify anything we don't like and anything that's repressive as fascism. And basically that turns fascism into a useless term. And it also does something very ironic. It glamorizes democratic capitalism because it basically suggests that democratic capitalism cannot be vicious, cannot be militaristic, cannot be repressive. That democratic capitalism is actually, frankly, not that bad and not that far from what our goal is. And, and I think that while I would certainly defend democratic capitalism over fascism, I think we need to be very clear that democratic capitalism, as we see in the history of the United States, it can be highly repressive uh, and, and regularly make use of various mechanisms, including extrajudicial violence, in order to advance its uh, efforts. Um, as, as Bill was pointing out, um, the, this, what I would call this right-wing populist movement within which there is a very active fascist current. Um, it's very interesting and peculiar in the U.S. It is very driven by white middle sector fear. Um, and, and it has parallels in Europe. Um, it's called the fear of white genocide or the fear of white displacement. And, and one of the things, if you look at 19, the, the fascism of the earlier 20th century, um, it was rooted, as was pointed out, in the middle sector that was fearing that they were being crushed by the rich and crushed by the poor, especially in between. And, uh, and so the, the mass movement itself was largely of the middle strata. And it's interesting because if you look at the Tea Party, that is exactly what you're talking about. When you look at Trump's base, that's pretty much exactly what you're talking about. Um, contrary to what was said after the 26 election, 2016 election, that suggested that the white working class had risen up. Uh, well, actually not so quick. It was much more the white middle strata that had revolted, revolted against both the, not what they were actually facing, but what they feared. Um, so there were fascinating things at the level of polling that were discovered after the election. Uh, while many liberal and some leftist commentators looked at the 2016 election as a referendum on economics, it turned out that people who highlighted economics as their main issue going in the election tended to vote for Hillary. People that uh, highlighted terrorism and immigration tended to vote for Trump. So what does that tell us? It says that, that through the prism of racial lenses, people were looking at the world. And it wasn't as easy as many people described at the time. Um, 
in some respects, the reason I mentioned before about Jim Crow is that I've been thinking a lot about the settler origins of the United States, which is something that Chip and Matthew point out in their book. And in some respects, the extreme right wing in the United States, both the right wing populists and the fascists, have as their critical image the Confederacy. And, um, and more broadly, I would say that, so we're looking at a kind of neo-Confederate movement that would like the reestablishment of a form of Jim Crow segregation or apartheid in the United States. Um, now, what does it say about Trump? Because I, I don't want to go on too long. Uh, I, I, let me just make two points. Um, first, about Trump. Trump is a crypto-fascist as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he is sort of like Berlusconi, corrupt, um, manipulative, uh, prepared to make alliances with anybody, um, not a particularly ideological fascist, but I call him a crypto-fascist. Uh, but the mass movement that supports him is broader than that. And, um, and I don't mean that to make light of it. Um, the second thing uh, that I think is important uh, is the, we mentioned in the, uh, it was mentioned by my colleagues about the issue of the possibilities of growth of the left. I think that that's correct. But I think we also have to understand the rise of right-wing populism and neo-fascism in part as a reflection of our weakness and the crisis of socialism, the crisis of the welfare state, the crisis of the national populist project, to borrow from Samir Amin, and along with that, neoliberalism. So neoliberalism um, has created the, uh, much of the fertile soil within which right-wing populism can grow as, an, as a hypocritical opponent. And I say hypocritical because right-wing populism, you look at around the world, there is no consistency. Right-wing populist movements can be pro-neoliberal, they can be anti-neoliberal, they're completely opportunistic. Um, in the United States, it's actually both, uh, sometimes at the same time. Um, but our weakness on, on the part of the left and our inability to raise fundamental structural challenges to capitalism and to uh, neoliberal capitalism in particular, our weakness in responding to the, um, the Obama administration's hesitancy and retreat opened up a lot of turf for the right-wing populists to, to move forward. As I always say, in the first six months of the Obama administration, if we had had a march of a million people demanding jobs, I'm not convinced there would have been a Tea Party. But many of us sat back. I'm gonna stop there, because I could go on and on. Yeah, Bill, I mean, Bill, Chris, and Bill, I mean, between your, all three of your opening comments, I think we have such a, a rich table uh, set here, and I don't want to step on toes because I really want to hear your views, but I just want to try to lift up a couple of things that I heard or questions, and then maybe go back to, to Chris, Bill, and, and Bill in the same order that we started, and, but also welcoming you to 
to respond directly to each other once once I maybe give you one or two more questions. And then also I want to point out to all our live Zoom participants, if you would like to ask a question in about a half an hour or so, we'll open it up to you. Just indicate in the chat box and we will uh, we'll, we'll try to get to everyone who wants to speak. Could be a question or a comment. I know people have many views on this topic. So Bill, I mean, from your comments, I wanted to lift up two things to kind of bounce back towards Chris and Bill. Um, and that is first off the question of where do we look for analogies, right? Uh, what, you know, uh, the question of European, like what is new, what is new and what is old, right? In this kind of configuration that we're facing today, right? I think, you know, Bill Fletcher, you flagged some, a danger right on the left of just using the, the term fascism becoming kind of a label for anything that we don't like or any, right? Uh, and that that may come at a cost. So I would love to hear uh, Bill and Chris and, and, and you as well, again, Bill, you know, talking about this, you know, where do we look for analogies? What is mm -hmm. new in this moment? I mean, of course, in this country, you know, we've had plenty of savagely bad politicians in, in power, including right-wing Republicans. Um, and Trump, you know, the effect of each horrible ruler tends to be to cast a golden glow on those who have come before, as if George W. Bush, you know, was some walk in the park. Um, so I really like to maybe dig in a little bit. Where do we see continuity and where do we see, you know, difference or rupture here, both not only in terms of Trump himself or his his regime, but in terms of these movements and these different kind of, um, you know, support centers and, and, you know, these, you know, groupuscles or these uh, these grouplets that uh, that uh, Bill Mullen addressed. So that's the, that's one question. What's new and what is not so new and what do we see as qualitatively different here and what does that mean for us? And picking up, and then, then the other point I wanted to, I mean, I guess highlight from, from your last comment, Bill, and, and in a way it ties back to Bill Mullen's very inspiring recollection of the 50,000 people that marched in Boston against the ultimately very piddly little group of free speech, right-wingers, whatever, hodgepodge. Uh, it was a really odd group that ended up actually rallying on the Boston Common that was being protested by 50,000. And I couldn't help as, as someone who's working in, in an institution, UMass Boston, that I see as a bulwark of anti-fascism in the sense that, right, college education or the lack thereof may be one of the biggest, right, determinants. And I don't mean to put this in an elitist way, but working class people that have access to higher learning, right, higher education, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest those folks are a lot less likely to break in a fascist direction if they go to a you know, a, an integrated kind of public institution that actually introduces them, uh, you know, to, to you know, the, the possibilities of, of, of intellectual education. I would love, so coming from that perspective, I saw that 50,000 march in Boston against these like 12 twerps on the Boston Common. Granted, after Heather Heyer's death, it was incredibly powerful on one level. On the other level, I'm like, can we get these numbers to march for something we want, you know? for free public higher education, for Bill mentions a jobs program. So this question of anti-fascist politics, progressive or radical socialist politics, uh, I mean, I guess I, I don't really, I, I wanna put it a little more sharply, just um, to what degree, like how do we evaluate the anti-fascist, Antifa resistance we're seeing in the street right now? And where does that resistance fit in to the kind of long game of progressive? I think for me, it would be a socialist transformation of society, where do we locate? I don't want to negate the need for that, that militant anti-fascism that is literally taking on the Proud Boys or whatever. Uh, but but I'd, I'd like to hear you know, your thoughts on um, the, uh, 
how we understand anti-fascist politics in relationship to the broader kind of progressive or socialist agenda that, that, that is kind of our, I would hope, our long game. Two big questions. Uh, take either one. Uh, I should have just given you one, but I gave you two. Um, take Chris or Bill, take either one and, and go with it. Well, maybe I'll respond to some of what you were lifting up with uh, Bill Fletcher's comments, and Bill could comment on more of the anti-fascist resistance. I mean, the, um, the in terms of um, a lot of, I think, well, a lot of what Bill Fletcher said, actually, we, you know, completely concur with in our book, or at least at the intro to the anti-fascist reader, and also my book as well, which is that, you know, most of the analogy, at least that I was looking at in the Honad by Hitler book of my own was that was to the United States. And uh, the premise really was that, you know, the United States has never had a quote unquote fascist state, a aka, you know, Hitler or Mussolini, but it has had in the 20th century fascist movements um, that have become quite mainstream, have shaped institutions and have done a lot of damage, even though they haven't taken full state power. Those include the KKK of the 1920s, the Coglanite movement of the 1930s, um, some of the civil rights backlash in the 50s, the movement around George Wallace in 1968, elements of the very influential elements of the Christian right. Um, but be that as it may, um, going back um, a little bit further to the issue of kind of racism, um, <clears throat> also agree completely that, you know, in, in my own kind of political practice and in my work as well, I don't, I don't really, and I know Bill doesn't either, see fascism as kind of the, like, the word for everything evil. Right, um, you know, we're driven by a lot of Marxist analytics, right? In which, yeah, it's actually capitalism is more the kind of the broader kind of rubric that we tend to be looking at more. Um, but that said, you know, if you think about racism and uh, you, like Joe had brought up um, Ted Allen's work kind of in the beginning, going back to the very um, beginnings of, you know, the North American kind of European settlement, right? You've got this, um, you know, well, at least Ted Allen's kind of thesis is really, it's not just him, um, it's also Eric Williams back in the 40s that, you know, capitalism pretty much developed modern racism, right, in the early modern period, we're talking about the 1600s, 1700s, um, that's, and, but it developed it basically as a way to kind of divide up the laboring class to kind of manage class conflict, you know, and, and Ted Allen's big point is that Bacon's rebellion um, in 1680s, right, where, you know, you have this multiracial uh, rise against indentured servitude. Um, it's put down and right afterwards, they start the slave codes, right? And this is not to say that um, racism is epiphenomenal, right, that, you know, okay, like capitalism is always kind of defining racism, but I think like Bill said, it's, um, you know, what you could say about kind of, you know, fascism is also in certain ways true of racism that um, it not only is just the herpes of the system, but racism more, more um, uh, specifically kind of has a life of its own <clears throat> that outlives its original function. So even though racism might have been kind of consciously developed in certain ways in the 17th century to kind of, you know, man it to get uh, non-elite whites to identify um, like vertically on the basis of uh, race rather than horizontally by class, right? That might have been its original function. But once people start playing the roles long enough, they don't necessarily remember where that comes from and racism begins to have a life of its own, right? And so there's way in which fascist movements can sometimes be kind of like, you know, uh, 
there's a way in which fascist movements can rise up basically and form in ways that are not always convenient for capital, right, and capitalism, right? Um, and, and, but it's important to note, you know, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Jim Crow South, that <clears throat> there is within what uh, Bill Fletcher calls democratic capitalism, what we in our book call kind of liberalism in the sense of enlightenment liberalism, um, that's always been kind of run on this kind of dual system of rights, almost wherever it is, you know, liberalism or you know, democratic capitalism under capitalist aus auspices has always created a kind of one body politic of citizens with rights, not always, but often. And then, you know, another body of kind of abject folks outside of the sphere of rights who exist for, you know, super exploitation of labor, who also exist basically to kind of as an other for the body, the non-elite parts of the body politic, right? So you have these, you know, dual spheres um, under capitalism. And, you know, there was an interesting analysis, what we try to, to bring about in the book was some of the Black Panther writings in the late 60s, early 70s, which was really interesting. This, there's this analytic within Black anti-fascism that you get, you know, all the way back from kind of, um, comments from Paul Robeson and Langston Hughes back in the 30s that they kind of see fascism as this widening circle of rightlessness. So Paul Robeson had said, um, you know, fascism in the, is the name for what the Negro has always faced, but now it's like enveloping the entire nation, right? And it, it, strikingly, Kathleen Cleaver said the same thing in 1968, where it's like fascism is this kind of widening circle um, that um, that basically encompasses the entire like nation in rightlessness, but that doesn't mean that e everyone is equally rightless. It means that basically those who were rightless before might actually face genocide, right? Uh, while as you know, the, those citizens with rights, the white citizens before, might not have liberal freedoms, but it's we're still not in fascism dealing with you know some kind of like equal across the board rightlessness, you know. So that's kind of a long, but I mean we're very very mindful I think the of of you know fascism doesn't exhaust um, the possibilities of evil in the world or or badness or whatever you want to call it. Um, so yeah. Yeah, and you also make clear in your editor's introduction the way in which neo, you see neo neoliberalism as kind of hollowing out democratic norms, right, and, and, and limitations that actually then en enables the kind of rise of fascism and also can disable resistance to it, right, or, 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 or narrow the means that people have available to them, trade unions, et cetera, right, uh, public services, right, that can, can create a kind of organic anti-fascist uh, counter. So, Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Uh, so much interesting stuff there. I also want to flag for those who are not familiar, Ted Allen referred to, uh, we've referred to him in a pre-show conversation. That's Theodore Allen, the author of the two-volume study, The Invention of the White Race. I think a must reading for any serious uh, critic of or historian of, of racism and, and uh, exploitation in the United States and Ireland for that matter. Uh, Bill Mullen, what do you think? A lot on the table here and then we'll go back to Bill Fletcher in a bit. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the analogy question. And I really like everything that Bill Fletcher said and Chris followed up on. Um, I, I think um, one thing is different about this iteration of global right-wing authoritarianism. It's one of its glues is Islamophobia. Uh, and I think this needs to be remarked upon. It has been remarked upon. Actually, Enzo Traverso, uh, who we excerpt in our book, has kind of talked about how the, you know, the Muslim has become 
for the new authoritarians to some extent almost like a companion to the Jew, a moving target. And I think we have to remember, we have to go back 15 or 20 years and look at the rise of the National Front in, in France and how uh, deeply Islamophobic that party's rise was and how it, Islamophobia has kind of swept Europe along with the immigration hysteria in the last 20 years as ha and has helped surface these, these right-wing parties. Trump and Modi have this in common, right? We can kind of go around the world and start to think about the way in which this new authoritarianism is to some extent also a, 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 a response and a, and, a, and a kind of reaction to 30 years of Western, you know, imperialism in the Middle East, going back to the, to the wars of the 1990s to 9-11. That, that's a really important racial configuration, which is also a xenophobic configuration. And I was glad Bill Fletcher talked about xenophobia as part of this, a part of this movement. The other thing I want to say about thinking about settler colonialism and, and some of the references to, to, to the work uh, of scholars on that question. I mean, we, we excerpt M.A. Césaire's discourse on colonialism, which I think is such an important mm -hmm. read for anybody who's trying to understand the relationship between fascism and colonialism. Um, and his argument is very simple. You know, he says, he says Europe's fascism, German, Germany's fascism was practiced in the colonies, right? Mm -hmm. What was done to the Jews in the 1930s and the 1940s was done to the to the to the Congolese, you know, in in the late 19th century. This is a way of thinking about a long arc, which is different than the long arc I talked about of the crisis of capitalism, it, which kind of ties into Bill's Bill's analysis, which is thinking about mm -hmm. democratic capitalism as always having been predicated upon a segregationist apartheid politics, which were very much developed out of 19th century colonial projects, right? Yes, there is a lot in common between South Africa and Jim Crow, right? So I think that that thread of analysis is really, really important to hold in, in place too. In terms of where we are in, in building an anti-fascist movement, which I think is one, one thing we're trying to think about, I mean, I think it's a, it's a work in progress. Um, I think the, the, the left has been reconstituting itself around a number of issues in the U.S. over the last 10 years. Anti-fascism is, is one of them. I, I think it's significant. I'll just come back to Black Lives Matter. I mean, uh, the New York Times can't always be believed, but, you know, their, their assessment that 26 million people have participated in some kind of Black Lives Matter march in the last... 10 years is a significant fact. Uh, we ought to be thinking about ways in which that movement could continue to grow and, and turn and become a platform for wider politics. I think that's actually what the Movement for Black Lives platform that was published about four years ago was asking us to consider. It was advocating for the right to join a union. It was advocating for a right to childcare. It was obviously advocating for uh, what has now become a popular cry for, for abolition of the police. And, I, and I'll come back to the police just to make one final point. Um, I'm a member of a group called the Campus Anti-Fascist Network. Chris is part of that group. And we started four years ago after Trump's election. And um, we wrote a statement about Kenosha in which we said it's really critical for people who are, who are involved in anti-fascist organizing right now to see the centrality of Black Lives Matter to that kind of organizing. Because the question of abolishing the police 
is a, a critical question for what kind of state we have or don't have. Uh, it, it's actually a critical question for whether even fascism could appear. And it's not here. We, we know it's not here yet. But if it is going to appear, it's going to require stronger and stronger cops. So I really think that we need to kind of bore in more on, on, on the, the, po the politics uh, of the question about policing as a, as, a, as a framework for thinking about building an alternative to the current moment we're in. Yeah, thanks, Phil. So much there. Um, I want to flag uh, two weeks from now, our next show will actually be on the 17th. We're going bi-weekly with the start of the school year for many of us. And in our, I'm sorry, actually uh, on the 17th, I believe, uh, our next show will be uh, focused on the question of um, the way, the weaponization of anti-Semitism, actually. Uh, so, and we'll be looking at the way in, in which, and then the weaponization of the accusation of anti-Semitism, right, uh, around the question of Israel, et cetera. So we will be actually zooming in on that question and the way in which our, you know, the question of Islamophobia, which, which Bill, I think, uh, tagged the very, very powerfully there a moment ago, will be very much um, on, uh, front, front and center in our, in our next episode as we move into a biweekly uh, it's actually, it is the 24th. Sorry, my producers were in my ear. Uh, the 24th, we'll be moving. We'll be doing two shows a month. The 24th, not the 17th, but the 24th. Uh, and we'll be digging more into that particular theme uh, and thinking internationally about it as well. So uh, thank you for that, Bill. Bill Fletcher, what do you think? A lot has been said. Questions on the table. Think lots to response to. Um, take it where you will. Well, I'm thinking that Bill and Chris and I need to go on the road together. Um, <laughs> because we seem to be on a very similar page. Um, and I, I feel like this discussion that's happening to this is an incredibly important discussion. Um, and, and so let me just add a few things. Um, at a general level, one thing that I think is important to recognize about fascism, as opposed to other right-wing currents, is that it is incredibly radical as a movement. It is not a movement of conservatism. It is a movement based on myths. So whether you're talking about Al-Qaeda or whether you're talking about um, you know, the Aryan nation, these fascist groups are, ideologically they have certain myths, but they're not conservative. They're not trying to hold back change. They are in fact insurrectionary. And they, uh, so they are not taking any prisoners when it comes to democratic capitalism. They don't want a conservative democratic capitalism. They want to get rid of it. And within the fascist movement, there are some forces that you could almost describe politically as neo-feudal, even though economically that's not what they're advocating. So, um, so it's important to understand the radical nature, which I mentioned because it has an appeal. And fascist movements can frequently articulate a form of anti-capitalism. And the, um, uh, in the Nazi party, it was uh, Gregor, the Strasser brothers, who were the left wing of the Nazi party that suggested that the Nazi party needed to root itself within the German working class. And they and a segment of the stormtroopers 
were the people that were calling for what they called a national revolution. Um, so it was to end the Weimar Republic and carry out what they saw as a national revolution, which in their mind was anti-corporate. It was anti-monopoly. Um, Hitler cut a deal with the, with, the, with the German military and with the capitalists, and so that didn't happen. But my point is that within fascist movements, you can often find these radical currents that can sometimes sound like they're on the left, which is very dangerous. And it's something that we started to see in Europe and the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet bloc, where you had these so-called black, uh, red-brown alliances between leftist groups and radical fascists who were ostensibly aligning against neoliberal capitalism. And so we've got to understand these are not good people. They are not even tactical allies. These are demons. And there's no united action with demons. Um, the second thing is that it's, it, one of the things that Poulan Sass raised in his final book was about what he called authoritarian statism and what I call humbly neoliberal authoritarianism. In other words, there's a tendency within democratic, so-called democratic capitalism towards increasing levels of authoritarianism. And we've been seeing it since the end of the 1970s. It's not the same thing as fascism. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons I think it's important analytically to distinguish different currents on the right, that, that there are efforts within our so-called democratic capitalist state, not just the United States, you see it in other places too, to um, uh, restrict the space for political action, for media, and other things, and it's, and it's compressing. Um, and I would argue that that's part of a preemptive strike by the capitalist class, and particularly the transnational uh, capitalists, uh, a preemptive strike against what they anticipate will be happening with responses to the environmental catastrophe and the deepening economic crises. That's different from fascism. Um, and, and so I, and so it's, it's not to say that one is better than the other, but these two phenomena are going on together. Now, what can sometimes happen is that they can overlap and you can have forces like the Koch brothers, or now I guess it's just one Koch, um, that will align tactically with fascistic elements. Um, and, and they might even have, like, I think the Koch's had a theological, a kind of theocratic right-wing populist view. Um, so you can see sometimes this kind of alignment. So it's important for us on the left to understand these folks, <clears throat> but also to understand that there will be splintering among the capitalists and uh, uh, broadly around the right. And we can see it now, the Lincoln Project. Uh, George Will, all these folks who are not our friends under normal circumstances, who have sometimes deeper critiques of Trump than many leftists do. Um, 
And, and so there's possibilities at some level for certain kinds of tactical alliances. Um, the, the question you were raising about anti-fascist politics and socialism, I think what we have to understand is that in opposing right-wing populism and fascism, we need a broad front. We cannot afford the mistakes that the left made in the 1920s and 1930s of class against class, or as the KPD said, after Hitler, us. We can't afford that. Uh, we've got to understand that we've got, to, we've got to set a very low bar for the forces that are ready to join hands against the right uh, because the stakes are just simply much too high. Yeah, Bill, thank you so much for that. Um, I want to reflect back to the, to the group uh, two aspects that I heard in your comment that seem to be in some kind of tension that I'd like to see if you can and clarify for me. Uh, because on the one hand, and I, I kind of agree with both, right, uh, aspects I heard, but I think there's some drawing out to do. On the one hand, you said these people, right, and I want to ask you, I guess, to define that, these, you know, these people are demons, not allies, not even to be united with in, in, uh, in practical coalitions, right? And then on the other hand, you're saying we need a broad movement to be to, to truly, you know, not uh, to avoid the, the missteps of, of anti-fascist movements of the past. So I guess my question for you is, and, and maybe for, for everyone, is where how do we draw that kind of friend or potential ally enemy distinction? I mean, and not to say that, I don't know if for each of you, there may be a litmus test, or obviously it's not simply a matter of how people answer one question, perhaps it is. Um, how do we, I mean, be, I guess I'm kind of asking about the question of populism, right? We have various people, for instance, the show The Rising with uh, Crystal Ball, Ball, uh, Ball and uh, Segar and Jetty, right? Who, 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 the premise of that show being there is some common basis around economic, you know, working class issues that unites some people that identify as conservative with people who identify as progressive. And of course, there's been responses to that from supportive and critical, or, or the book like Thomas Frank's new book on populism and anti-populism, right? That seems to want to reclaim that kind of working class, uh, the roots of and the history of working class rebellion, acknowledging that it, that it had its limits on issues of race and gender, but also pushing back against a historiography that would, would kind of just emphasize the negative uh, aspects of the populace, the actual original populace, and kind of dismissing that whole movement. I mean, I guess my question for you, Bill, and, and I'd love to hear the others' uh, comments on this as well, is like, how, how do you draw that, that kind of ally, potential ally, enemy distinction when we are dealing with uh, real working class hurt, even among people who may turn in a very reactionary direction? Uh, I, I'm curious, it seems to be a very ongoing practical question for those on the left. How do we seek unity and on what basis? Uh, and then, and, and, you know, who is to be united with or potentially won over and who is to be isolated, uh, exposed and destroyed uh, or defeated? Um, I don't know. Uh, well, maybe, I don't know if you want to take that first bill and then we'll go back to Chris and Bill. Yeah, I mean, part of it is a simple answer. Someone who's trying to kill me is my enemy. Uh, no matter what kind of smile they have on their face. And so, uh, so I begin there. And uh, the second thing I'd say is that um, what I think is critically important to understand about right-wing populists and particularly fascists is that they may make various kinds of, of appeals to white, poor, and working people. 
Um, and they may sound like people on the left, but the critical question you, you gain from remembering the great philosopher Tonto, who asked the Lone Ranger, what do you mean we? Who is the we, right? Who is the we? When the fascists are talking about we, when the right-wing populists are talking about we, they're not talking about people like me, right? They're not talking about Native Americans. They're not talking about most women. They have a very definite idea about what they mean by we, which goes back to what I was saying about the Nazis and the left wing of the Nazis. They could sound very radical at the same time that they were contemplating the extermination of the Jews, because even the left wing of the Nazis were assuming some sort of quasi-socialist state, but without anyone else, without Jews, without gypsies, or the Roma, excuse me, right? Um, and so I think it's really important that we're building a front that is advancing a democratic with a small d platform, a popular democratic platform and that's where the dividing line comes between us and the fascists. Because every, the democratic means everyone who lives here, right? Everyone, yeah. every person has rights, right? It's not, right. it's not rights are not excluded for, for one particular group based on race or nationality or whatever. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Bill and Chris, um, you know, I, I, I threw a question at you. There's Bill said a lot. Uh, there's lots to respond to. Um, step into whatever, whatever you'd like. Well, yeah, there's a lot going on, too. And I think in, in terms of what kind of unity front one has, right, there's a in, in the reader, we included a piece by um, from the I think it was 72 from Les Evans on uh, the United Front versus the popular front. This is kind of an older debate on the left that goes back to, you know, the, you know, 20s and 30s, right, that like, uh, a lot of younger folks are not familiar with, right? Which is the, you know, the United Front is this idea that you have, um, it's a kind of a smaller group of more hardcore um, left, it's a smaller coalition of left groups united on a left platform, right? And the, a good example of that was in the late 60s that the, what the Panthers tried to do with the United Front uh, um, Against Fascism Conference that was designed to kind of build a coalition amongst a variety of radical groups, you know, amongst um, Latinos, Asian Americans, um, white radicals, right? But, you know, the popular front, more the 30s idea was that, okay, you have an even broader tent, you know, you basically, it's those who are really opposed to the hard right, right? And so you will, you will get even, you, you know, you'll unite with liberals, you will unite with even kind of like, you know, moderates, right? Um, even try to pick off some of those kind of liberal capitalists, if you want, maybe, I don't know if they, they didn't always go that far in the 30s. But I mean, I, 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 I am more, I think, with Bill Fletcher on this too. I am in these days a little bit, um, at least for defeating Trump for the broader umbrella, then we can fight amongst ourselves again. <laughs> but but the, the thing with the, uh, I think it is important still also in that, on that note to really, to, when you're thinking about the friend enemy distinction, to really kind of parse out the elements of the right, you know, and to, and to realize that they're not all the same. Also, not every Trump voter is some irredeemable monster, you know, that can't be kind of brought back. You know, in 2016, a lot of people voted for Trump, you know, and that are probably not going to vote for him a second time. So do you just shun all of these people forever? No. But what, you know, and you also, there was a, there was a distinction that um, uh, Corey Robinson did in this great book, The Reactionary Mind, 
on, um, so the right tended to be divided into those, really into poles, those who are more drawn to the warrior and more drawn to the businessman, right? What united the right really was this investment in social hierarchy, right? But, um, you know, and there was not always a neat distinction, but I think that's pretty helpful for thinking also through the fascist too, which is that, you know, for fascists, it's the economics are a means to an end. They don't really care, you know, some will support neoliberalism, some will be against it, more against, going back in the 30s, you know, they will have anti-capitalist rhetoric back before they get into power and then they'll, you know, kill the brown shirts, you know, once they get into power, which were the more socialist elements and support, you know, the capitalist classes more unequivocally. They don't, they don't care about economics. They care about race, nation, action, violence, you know, uh, manhood, all of these things. So um, there is opportunity if you want to, to pry off some of the capitalists. It's, it is kind of interesting that they hate Bill Gates almost more than anyone, right? Um, and I'm, I don't want to necessarily have a coalition with Bill Gates. That's not what I'm saying. But um, I do think that that kind of, you know, one needs to be mindful of the split. In terms of just last thing I'll say here, in terms of who is, there are folks that are just irredeemable. I mean, what do you, a, a good index is not only just, you know, who's the danger to me, but who's actually the danger to, you know, people of color, LGBTQ folks, like who is an actual kind of physical threat there, right? And, um, you know, where was, I was talking strangely to this um, after kind of one of these similar panels to a, a former German neo-Nazi, right, who now is kind of switched the other way and tries to, you know, is an anti-fascist, you know, and he, I, I said something to him and he, he kind of agreed, which is that like, like if you're so really far down the rabbit hole of right wing radio and everything like that, an argument is not going to bring you out of it. It's got to be some kind of life crisis, right? Um, right. That, that really turns you around. It's not going to be an argument. Um, you know, so that, you know, that's something to keep in mind, right? Um, but, you know, there's a lot of folks that are not so far down that rabbit hole that they can't be brought out. So that's all I say. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Bill, what do you think? Bill Mullen. Um, yeah, I'm going to, uh, I'm reading the chat and I'm just going to try to take up two quick questions. Somebody asked about how China's treatment of the Uyghurs fit into this. That's for me, that's another example of the Islamophobia as a, you know, as a kind of synth synthetic, uh, component of authoritarian regimes. And we could talk more about that. Um, uh, on the question, Karen had asked about what do we do about the aversion to organizing and, and organizing parties? I mean, I, we talk in our book and I'm, I'm trained in the Trotskyist tradition and uh, Trotsky's argument about the United Front against fascism still makes sense to me. Uh, the, the idea, as Bill Fletcher put it, is you have a low bar for entry. If you're willing to fight the fascists, you can join the United Front. Um, and then we'll see where we agree and we'll see where we disagree. And I feel like we're in a political moment where we need that kind of united front approach. I actually think we do need a new revolutionary party that would include anti-fascism as one of its planks. But I think the united front's going to look different than it did in the 1930s. Um, I would, I've already talked a little bit about how it would have to include uh, Muslim groups um, who are, you know, right now at kind of the front line of victimization oftentimes of xenophobia and immigration. Uh, most, uh, Bill mentioned earlier that most uh, fascist movements are deeply uh, misogynistic. Um, we see that in groups like the Proud Boys, you know, which is kind of cult of vir virile masculinity. 
I mean, the, the, the right rose to Poland partly by trying to ban abortion. And it kicked up a gigantic women's movement there. And if you look at Brazil, feminists have been some of the best critics of the Bolsonaro regime because he's so openly misogynistic. So there's a chance for the United Front to include a feminist uh, analysis of fascism that we probably haven't even developed sufficiently yet over over the years. Um, and then, and I'll just say one more thing: we we do need to we do need to think further about Black Lives Matter. Um, we we hosted uh, our campus anti-fascist network hosted a a webinar a few weeks ago called um, Lessons from Portland. And you know, if folks haven't studied Portland, we had a we had a transgendered street medic, um, which is part of a roving unit of people that was out on the streets for you know 50 days um, in basically what became a kind of you know people's occupation of the city before before Trump sent the feds in, and and they were talking about how transgendered folks, how Black Lives Matter had become this occupation. It had transformed into a broad-based united front, bringing together trans activists you know, what, what were they called? The wall of moms, right? They came down from the suburbs. There were homeless people cooking meals on the streets for the protesters. Now, this, this is a kind of, you know, this is a challenge to our, our thinking about what's possible as social organization. But Portland gave us and has given us, I think, a sense of what a, a, an organic, uh, uh, progressive, uh, uh, intersectional politics can look like that is both rooted in a movement like Black Lives Matter, but but actually becomes something some something deeper, broader, and and more sustained. And I noticed somebody in the chat asked about you know what what is the future of BLM. I don't really know, but I think Portland merits studies. I think I think 10 and 15 years from now it'd be nice to look back and say yeah Portland was the model that helped us um, get break this impasse on the left. That's fascinating, uh, fascinating. I really would love to hear more. Maybe, maybe we could link to that piece you mentioned uh, or that discussion you, you, you uh, mentioned about the lessons of Portland. I'd love to, love to learn more about that. We actually want to start drawing into the conversation our live audience here on Zoom and if possible, those who are on Facebook. Uh, the first person I have in the queue is, uh, is Mark Soderstrom, who actually has a, a question I think that uh, picks up from your last point uh, brilliantly, Bill. Uh, Mark, join us. Yeah, I was very happy to hear you sort of mention the developing uh, feminist critique of fascism because I really wanted to ask you, um, we had only sort of casually mentioned the misogyny of the movement earlier until your last moment. And I think I was wondering if you could sort of expand on the kind of complex tension there is inside fascism between uh, the role of gender almost symbolically and then the role of women who are very important to these fascist movements, right? Uh, Christine Delagarde writes on the anti-communist women in the early 20th century. Kathleen Blee has written extensively on the role, the very important role of women in the Klan of the 20s and then the important role of women in organized hate groups. And this sort of difficult for many of us to engage tension between an, what we see as an overt misogynistic movement that relies heavily on women's participation is something I would wonder if you could expand and explore for us. Is, 
take, take it away. We'll, we'll take another question or comment in a bit, but that's plenty for now. Shall I respond or does somebody else want to take a swing at that? I'm happy to take to, to start. Yeah, you go, you go, Bill. And I know your, your book has some great stuff on this too. I'm looking up as you speak. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah, we, we have it actually a nice piece uh, called Lipstick Fascism uh, by Sam Miller about how uh, white women in particular uh, across the U.S. have adjoined themselves to this new right-wing authoritarianism. Um, and I think the tension you're describing is really important. I mean, Bill talked about fascism as a myth, as a, as a mythology. The mythology of national rebirth usually means hardening gender roles. Men go out and fight the wars. Women stay home and breed. There's a great communist poet of the 1930s who wrote a poem called Breed, Women, Breed, which is talking about, you know, Hitler's campaign of, of Aryan reproduction. And I think that tension is still there. Um, I, I think what we have to say is two things. We resist fascists, whether they're men or women. But I think we should also be aware that the, the right is constantly trying to engage itself in a project of a kind of nationalist renewal, which always is trying to move women backwards. Right. I mean, we can we see this all the time. Uh, and I think that in its most guttural expression, you get groups like the Proud Boys who are not just you know, misogynistic, but transphobic and homophobic very often. Right. And I think a, a, a part of this feminist critique of fascism has to take up that question. Right. How does how does how, how did how did we get the pink triangle? We got the pink triangle because. Hitler put gays and lesbians into the camps too. So fascism's gender politics have always been consistently uh, reactionary, but I think we actually have far more tools now and people to provide critiques of those tools. And that's one of the things Sam Miller's essay is trying to do in our book. I'll stop there. Uh, if I can just add, there's an irony though in what you were raising, Bill, when you think about the stormtroopers and Ernest Rome, uh, mm. and and the attitude before the night of uh, the Long Knives, 1934, that Hitler was himself quite prepared to turn a blind eye on homosexuality, male homosexuality, within the ranks of of the party, um, and so uh, as long as it served him. But I don't want that to take away from your overall point, with which I agree. Sure. And I think sure. you see this. It's there. It's quite ironic when you see someone like Marine Le Pen in France, um, and and but when you look at the actual politics of the Front National, uh, and you see this again and again, what appears to be a contradiction, but it really isn't. I mean, someone in the uh, chat uh, put up about the Daughters of the Confederacy. And yeah, I mean, not that I would describe them as necessarily fascist, but uh, perhaps proto-fascist. It's the same basic point. 
Well, and, you know, part of this, part of the question of how, you know, uh, many women, or I won't say many, but some women will identify with what we, neo-fascism or white nationalism, what we want to call it. You know, some of it is not too complicated to parse out. You know, we are talking about generally white women, right? You know, who are, you are embracing kind of whiteness and embracing a, a, a kind of protected role within whiteness and the category of whiteness, right? That is, um, you know, worth kind of, you know, taking a backseat in terms of gender, right? Um, but like also just on, on the, you know, the, mask, the masculinism of fascism, I mean, still my, I think that the, the book that's the best one still ever is Klaus Tevelite's Male Fantasies, basically this kind of two volume study is huge. We have a little excerpt of it actually from um, Barbara Ehrenreich's kind of introduction to it, which is a contribution to American kind of feminist anti-fascism in its own right. Um, but I think, you know, what, one of the things that, you know, Tevelite brings out was, is that, you know, the masculinity of fascism is so important because the, because it goes back to the warrior ethos, kind of what they're seeking really, um, is to kind of, you know, if you think about, um, that, you know, the historical fascist, right, we're talking about Hitler and Mussolini, they wanted to recreate society, recreate the kind of civilian structure on the basis of the army. And what does that mean to create, recreate society on the basis of the army? It means to create, a, um, you know, at that time, a homosocial world in which only men really exist. What they were really drawn to, um, what the fascists were drawn to, and I think this still carries over today, was this male brotherhood, this male bonding of the trenches, this brotherhood by fire where there was really no women. And Tevelite really studied all of these, you know, autobiographies of fascists in the 20s, early proto-fascists of the Freikorps in the 20s, and kind of found that it's, it, women just did not mostly exist in their narratives. I mean, they would just, you would go through there in this entire long autobiography and, and this guy might mention his wife um, in a sentence and it wouldn't even mention her name, right? Um, and so th the ways in which they're, they're really kind of, obviously they don't want a world without women, but women are just as kind of actors are just not interesting to them because their identity is so based on this kind of um, strangely kind of horizontal, uh, you know, um, bond between kind of warrior men and generally mm -hmm. warrior white men. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Chris, you kind of took the words out of my mouth. I'm so glad you went to that Aaron Reich uh, excerpt from, from the US anti-fascism reader uh, that you and Bill have, have written. I mean, one point that struck me in that Ehrenreich excerpt uh, was, the, you know, the, the discussion of the free court, right? Uh, the, you know, pardon my German, my lack of a German accent. Uh, but, the, and I'm wondering about the status of veterans, right? I mean, I mean, we, 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 I mean, in this country have, you know, millions and millions, right, of people that have served in the military and had, you know, and, and been exposed to, you know, God knows how many different aspects of that experience. I mean, I, there isn't something directly in the book on the question of like, veterans organizations, veter you know, whether it's Vietnam veterans, uh, fascism, pro-fascist or anti-fascist. I wondered, and then the other thing that I didn't uh, see as directly addressed in, in, in the anthology that I'd love to hear about is the question of the church. I mean, Chris Hedges, or not just the church, but certain sorts of reactionary religious organizations, Chris Hedges' book, you know, American Fascist, uh, comes to mind here. And I just wondered, I mean, again, these are big questions, but uh, either, you know, the question of how, you know, how do we gauge the, the, the importance of, it would seem to be that, that veteran organizing or organizing among, uh, you know, uh, those who have been touched by the military machine in this way would be a, would be a crucial 
uh, question, a crucial front for, for anti-fascist organizing. I don't know if, if you want to say more about that or, or on the question of, of the role of the church here. I think they both do relate to the gender question very much too. I would, the, the gender and sexuality question, I think as well. I don't know if Chris or Bill or either Bill wants to step into that, but this question of this place of veterans in such a militarized empire like the United States, uh, where we've had what a 16 year war, 17 year war in, Af in Afghanistan already, right? Or it's going on 20 years now, I guess. Um, yeah, what, what about veterans and what about, what about the, the rise of these fundamentalist churches? Well, the veterans bit, I mean, just to be brief, I mean, that, that is what struck a lot of people in the 1950s, and this was after the kind of the rise of the military industrial complex, I guess it was with NSC 69, this thing of, you know, Truman's um, national security, um, you know, uh, impulse basically that created this permanent massive military structure, created, did militarize, um, you know, U.S. society in ways that, not that it lacked militarism before, but it created this permanent standing army that was quite large, that did also create the basis for kind of more fascist mobilization, right? Um, and But that's one of the ways in which um, Trump doesn't really track with the, at least the historical fascist, right? You know, that um, he's not a military man, right? Um, Hitler, veteran, uh, Mussolini, veteran, Franco, you know, military guy, the Japanese militarists, military folks, right? You know, they tend to, you know, it, it really is, fascism, um, really, at least in its historical manifestations, really was like almost a set of veterans organizations, right? Because that was the kind of the military ethos that was so central to it, um, which doesn't mean you cannot be a and, you know, non-veteran and a, like a, or sorry, does, doesn't mean you could be a non-veteran and still be a fascist. You can, but also very salient, you raise the question of the church. One of the things that's really distinctive about the history of American fascist movements is how central um, Christianity is to those movements um, consistently, whether you're talking about the Klan and Protestantism, or you're talking about the Coglanite movements and Catholicism, um, whether you're talking about Gerald Winrod, Gerald L.K. Smith, um, William Dudley Paley back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, whether you're talking about the Christian right, whether you're talking about George Wallace, Christianity is all over the place of kind of a very authoritarian form of Christianity that, that builds on some of the same mobilizing passions of fascist movements as investment and social hierarchy that doesn't necessarily go back to capitalism, right? Although it has an, a relationship to it. So the church in the United States has been central. One of the things that's, you know, you're starting to see now, at least with the alt-right, which is novel, is the ways in which um, younger generations of American kind of proto-fascists who are self-identifying as fascism, fascists are not as religious. You know, you're starting to see a kind of a more secular fascist tradition arising amongst younger, um, you know, um, fascist-oriented folks in the United States. In certain ways, I don't know if that's more or less scary, um, but it's just a thing, so. Yeah, thanks for that, Chris. You did a great job with that uh, compound question. Bill or Bill, would you like, like to speak to this before we bring in a couple uh, more audience folks? Uh, no. I mean, okay. there's plenty to say, but why don't you bring in the audience? Sure, great. Uh, let's go to Karen uh, next. And then and Dave, I think Dave Lewitt would like to speak. We'll take Karen, David, and Bruce all at once. And then we'll go back to our great panel one more time. Or thanks, once or twice. Thanks, Joe. Um, I just think it's really important to consider what point of unity would be. And to me, it would be anti-racism. And when you talked about the suffrage movement, I think somebody raised that in the chat. 
I mean, a lot of the white women who were organizing for this excluded black women as their partners because they didn't want to lose the South. And they actually did lose the South anyhow. But I wouldn't want to ally with the group, regardless of what they were fighting for, if they were particularly racist in their approach. And I also just wanted to raise the issue of liberals being, you know, not our friends. And that could be liberal politicians like the people we see running today, or it could be just regular people who support peaceful protests. But if they go beyond that, you know, they would be just as anti-revolutionary or anti-progressive as the next person. And so I think we have to figure out how to deal with that, how to really encourage people to build organizations. I mean, I prefer a communist party, but we need something even more basic than that today. And um, so I'd like to hear what people think, especially about aligning with liberals. Okay. A really important question. Uh, we'll take David and, and Bruce and then back to the panel. So take notes, folks, if you can. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'd, like to talk, I'd like to ask about something much more immediate. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, something that'll, that could, could happen in the next, uh, this December. Um, if Trump is not elected, uh, he threatens a coup. Um, he threatens to use force somehow, some kind of force to, uh, to declare himself the real president. And so my question is really, uh, can he use the army? Is the army united? Is the army split between constitutionalists and cowboys or, or what? Great question, great question. And we'll add one more, I'm sure, profound question. Bruce Simon, a regular on Shelter and Solidarity. Good to see you, Bruce. Hey, I just have a question about right-wing tactics versus right-wing wing ideology. Um, you know, going back to the Gulf War, right? So many use the, the slogan Islamofascism to, to, to try to create alliances, even with people on the left, right? Um, but at the same time, when we hear uh, about domestic terrorism and the way Trump doesn't want to even hear the phrase and the radicalization of people on the right wing. We also hear on the tactical level about some organizations on the right using the ISIS playbook. So, um, you know, just, just to think about, you know, does that mean they're for Christian fascism, like, like was suggested earlier, but they're willing to use um, tactics that could lay the groundwork for, you know, as, as Dave was saying, some kind of coup attempt uh, in the next few months. Great. So a couple questions that bring us back to the present moment, the election question mark. Of course, we all, I'm sure, aware of the news. Trump was uh, interviewed and, and actually encouraging people to vote twice in order to test the, the system in North Carolina, right? Actually, uh, actively uh, delegitimizing the election in a new way by actually calling forth the fraud that he was supposedly afraid of. So yeah, what about this? So Karen asked about the relationship to, to liberals. Uh, the, uh, Dave asked about the election uh, and the threats, the question of Trump and his relationship to the army. And Bruce just spoke, so I won't repeat his question. What do you guys think? Uh, let's go to, let's go to, um, who wants to go first? Chris, Bill, Bill? 
jump on in. Pick. We have three to pick from, so pick your pick your nourishment here. I mean, I'll what start. Do we yeah, thanks. Um, okay. So first, in terms of liberals, um, I think when you ally against that, first of all, the a basic principle of politics and war is that you don't take on more enemies than you can take down at any one moment. And that's something that we on the left forget. We, we are much more inclined towards creating as many enemies as we can and identifying them all as needing to be taken down. And that's why we keep getting our asses kicked. So one of the things we gotta figure out is at any one moment, who's the principal enemy? And then who has a vested interest in taking that enemy down? Um, and, and, you know, my attitude is if Ho Chi Minh could take weapons from the United States to fight the Japanese, don't talk to me about, about allying with liberals. Um, so, so that's one thing. Uh, the thing is that you got to keep your eyes open at any moment, but that's, that should be self-evident. In terms of what happens in November, since it's very possible that the voting results will not be clear, uh, for a few days. Um, I think what's critical is that there needs to be put together now, um, and there's some efforts in this direction already, a broad front that is prepared to shut the country down if necessary. And it means really stopping things. When the, when the, when the German right carried out the Cap Putsch in 1920, uh, there was a general strike that basically just shut Germany down. Um, and it was, they were successful because of the nature of the assault, that particular kind of assault by the German right. Um, I think that we have to have a mass movement of people that are in the streets and that are basically, much like the athletes demonstrated the other day, going to say that normality is not going to be happening. Um, and it's going to have to be on a massive level because the other side is armed. And that's something that we're not going to talk about here, but people need to be talking about somewhere, that the other side is armed. They're not engaging in using harsh language against us. Um, and so we got to figure that one out. The, um, this last point, see, the fact that opportunists were using the term Islamofascist doesn't mean that there weren't clerical fascists. I would argue that Al-Qaeda and Daesh are fascist organizations, absolutely fascist organizations. And so the fact that you could have um, white Christian fascists enamored with them, it's like, so what? Of course. I mean, they'll take whatever kind of tactics because one of the things is that they're, in many respects, their value system is almost identical. So there, there really should be no surprise there that they would borrow from Daesh or from Al-Qaeda. Uh, and then keep in mind the Turner Diaries, which was the, essentially the Bible for much of the, much of the contemporary alt-right and uh, people like Timothy McVeigh and others that postulated guerrilla warfare. So um, there should be no surprise. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Bill or Chris, there's still a lot on the table here. The question of the election, the possibility of something resembling a Trumpian coup, 
the place of the army in such a, the military's relationship to such a thing, right-wing tactics versus ideology. Um, Chris or Bill? And the, and the question of relationship oh. to liberals. Yeah. I'll just make a couple quick points. You know, lots of historians have observed that we've only actually gotten to fascism through democracy. Uh, and, it, and it raises the specter of the role of liberalism at writ large in the long arc of fascist rise uh, across the 20th century. Um, I'm politically uh, of a mind that, you know, we're not going to resolve our problems through this election in the fall. Um, I do believe in the lesser of two evil arguments. <laughs> Hal Draper's argument about the Democratic Party. I think Biden right now is that lesser of two evils. I think the way he's running to the right to uh, lock up people who are protesting is really, really a sign that folks listening in ought to be paying really careful attention to what their left politics may mean after November. And I actually like Bill's idea. If, if, if I've had that, I've had that, you know, Hollywood film scenario where Trump won't leave the White House, and I think we're going to need something. I, I'm, I'll, I'll vote for a general strike too. Uh, I, I think it would require a mass mobilization like we haven't seen in this country. Um, hopefully, that mass mobilization would then lead to. Uh, a political organization that would get us further than Democrats and Republicans are going to get us in November, no matter what happens. Yeah, and, and I, lo I love Bill uh, Fletcher's comment too about the, um, you know, Ho Chi Minh aligning with the United States and, you know, the, so don't tell me about aligning with the liberals. I think that said it better than, than I could. Um, you know, but on the on the bit about Trump, I mean, this stuff with the election and the post office and everything like that does scare the hell out of me. I mean, I think it is something we need to be, be on the streets about now and increasingly as things, you know, get get um, to the get to the point of the election. But um, also, just in terms of the role of the military and organ, it, it is important, I think, for our movements to reach out to veterans as much as possible. Um, whether, you know, the other, like I said, the other side has guns. Um, we do need veterans on our side. Um, and interestingly, in the, in the history of the left, um, it seems like that the there have been more kind of coalitions with um, soldiers or former soldiers than there has been with police, interestingly. Mm -hmm. the, the, the left does not tend to make friends with the police ever, but veterans is a different story. Um, you know, and there's, you know, the Russian Revolution is famous, right? That's the, or the Bolshevik Revolution, sorry, is, is famous for that. You know, in terms of, you know, on the good side, and I don't want to, you know, overplay this too much, but I'm not sure that Trump if Trump wants to do a coup, I'm not sure if he has the backing of military leadership. You know, I mean, you know, probably most, um, there are more people in the military maybe vote for Trump than not, but that doesn't mean they're going to actually fall him off a cliff. If you're actually going to do a coup d'etat in the United States that has no history of that, that's a big deal. And if you lose, you're going to go to jail or die, right? And you're not going to follow a halfwit. One would hope, right? Um, who's into that kind of massive decision. So, 
I'm I'm less worried about him doing a coup, but I am worried about him screwing procedurally with the election, which is not even, by the way, a fascist thing. That's almost normal in the capitalist world to kind of screw right. with elections, right? That's what they do. That's what the elite does. Um, that's normative within capitalism, within quote unquote democratic capitalism or liberalism or what we want to call it. So, you know, um, that to me is a is something we need to be totally on. Absolutely. Actually, one of our uh, frequent uh, Zoom participants, Victor Wallace, has a book called Democracy Denied, which I highly recommend here uh, on that very point on the, the enduring historical structural uh, barriers to anything like real democracy in this country. I don't know if Victor is, is tempted to say a word or two on this, putting him on the spot. He, you don't need to, Victor, but if you'd like to, I see you there. Uh, would you like to offer a comment on that point? This, Vic, this is Victor Wallace, author of many, uh, several books, but uh, Democracy Denied is one of them. I think he's still hooking up his, there he is. He's, you got the, uh, Victor, you, are you ready? Can you unmute yourself? Question. Yeah, there, there you are. Victor, be here. This is Victor Wallace, uh, longtime managing editor of Socialism and Democracy, author of uh, Red Green Revolution, as well as uh, Democracy Denied. Victor. Yeah. Uh, I, I was unfortunately interrupted just at that point where you uh, on the last point. So if you could just quickly uh, restate the point uh, that, that you wanted me to comment on. Oh, well, Victor, yeah, I just, I mean, Chris made the point about how it's actually the norm for capitalism to put up barriers to voting and, and to erode uh, actual, you know, formal democratic procedure. Under, you know, it doesn't take a Trump to do that, even though Trump may be bringing it to a new place. Yeah. We're going to be wrapping up shortly, but just if you had a brief comment on this that you'd like to add, uh, we will, uh, you know, we would love to hear it. Yeah, I, my impression is that this is a, a specific characteristic of the United States. It's much more prominent, this, uh, this electoral fraud and electoral confusion in the United States than it is in the other advanced capitalist countries. And I think that's partly because the, you know, the whole development of this country uh, has prevented the emergence of a strong working class party. And there's been a kind of uh, uninhibited corruption. And it's facilitated, of course, also by the, the federal structure of the government, the fact that, the, that every state makes its own laws regarding how elections are run. And, and the, the state legislatures, you know, every, every 10 years, they redraw the boundaries in a, in a way to preserve their, uh, their, uh, the domination of the particular party. So, and there's so much corruption. The, uh, I mean, the level of corruption, for example, I mean, to me, the most shocking single instance is, is the idea that a, within us, any of the particular states, a candidate for office can be at the same time the individual who administers the election. Uh, so uh, there's an extraordinary degree of this type of thing in the United States. And I, I think that that's one whole separate uh, aspect of, of the issue. Uh, but the the other aspect, uh, and this really builds on on what Bill Fletcher was saying, is the the whole culture uh, that has developed in this country, that it's symbolized now in current debates, sometimes by the debates over the gun culture, but based on the way the country was formed with the uh, the dual uh, phenomenon of uh, being a settler state uh, uh, against the indigenous population and being a, a slaveocracy, uh, all of which involved deputizing. Uh, individuals to uh, carry out the, the, the role of repression. Uh, all this is 
quite different in the United States from other countries. And it gives a particular character to the kind of uh, repressive uh, response that will, uh, that will take place in this country. Uh, so I, th I think that, that is, um, those are the characteristics that I would single out. And, and I think Trump uh, builds on that. And so, so even without having a kind of uh, strong ideology, ideological party, I mean, I find the ideology less, uh, obviously not in Trump himself, but in the people that he surrounded himself with and in the people in the general population whom he supports. So that, so, so that I find that, you know, without having a, a fascist movement as such, uh, it is a, a real uh, fascist type of phenomenon. Thank you, Victor. I'm alerted to the time. I know Bill Fletcher needs to leave us momentarily. We, we usually go 90 minutes, a little over. Any closing remarks? Uh, Bill's told, Bill Fletcher said he doesn't have any. He needs to hop off momently, uh, momentarily. Uh, Chris or Bill, do you have any brief closing words that you'd like to share with us um, as this conversation uh, comes to a close? Yes. Just thank, thanks to you, Joe, and, and your, your team and uh, for having us on and for the great comments and questions from, from out there. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. It's so great to, 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 have, to have a conversation in person with you instead of just reading your work and emailing you. So it's social media. Chris, any closing comments, words of yeah, wisdom? Yeah, and just, and again, thank you for having us on. This has been a really great conversation um, and met a lot of new great people. And, um, you know, just on, on when I loop back to really briefly to a point that Bill Mullen made at the beginning, which is, you know, there's a lot more people on the kind of far left now than there are on the far right. There's a lot, we're the, at least the left and the kind of liberal and left and liberals are more numerous. I'd be, I would be more, way more depressed if I was in Hungary or the Philippines, where um, you know the majority of the population legitimately supports the glorious leader, right? Um, so we've got a lot to work with, right? And we can't forget that this is a great discussion. We need to start, start talking about fascism because these folks are not going to go anywhere. Um, after even if Biden wins, they're they're not going to go anywhere, and they're going to be traumatized, right? And they're going to be committing more terrorism, right? But we do have the majority. At least, at least not like we, right? Um, if you're going to say the the kind of the 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 lib there's more. I I would honestly say more liberals and leftists at this point than there are people on the hard right by a lot, and that, that that's a real strength to work with. And and, and if I, yeah. if I could just add to that, that's why voter suppression is such an important part because as Trump said, if everyone voted, uh, the, the Republicans would never win again. <laughs> true, yeah, true democracy if we could ever have such a thing would be on our side. Yeah, I can't, I can't help this conversation. A Bill, comments from Bill Fletcher made me think of that famous, uh, the notion of the mass line is uniting the advanced, winning over the intermediate, isolating and defeating the backward. And I think sometimes the left in the age of social media is so consumed with the backward that we don't do the work of uniting the advanced and winning over the intermediate. And, uh, you know, that's a topic for a whole other show, but I really was very inspired as well as informed by the, the work of everyone that's been on this panel and all your comments today. It's been a great show. Thanks to everyone who helped to organize it and for being here even at the start of the semester for some of us, which is quite crazy. Linda Liu, a co-producer with myself, we're in the middle of a move here in Dorchester. So uh, sorry, sorry if we've been a little frazzled today, but I'd like to thank the other co-producers, Tim Sheard, Sren Mudliar, Kira Mudliar, Mark Soderstrom, uh, as well as our uh, sponsoring organizations, the journals uh, Socialism and Democracy, the Press, Hardball Press, a publisher of Working Class Stories, Community Church of Boston, as well as Encuentro Cinco, affectionately known as E5, an organizing hub for progressive, a, a big tent progressive and radical organizing center in downtown Boston. 
uh, Shelter and Solidarity is going into a twice a month format from now on, and we will be back here at 7 p.m. on the 24th for a show about the weaponization of accusations of anti-Semitism within the movement, uh, something we've touched on today, and we hope we'll have some of you back for that. Bring your friends, promote us. We have no million dollar uh, bank account to do our promotion for us. We need to do it the old fashioned way, even if it's in new conditions via Zoom and Facebook. See y'all in a couple weeks and uh, everyone take care, stay safe, stay engaged and stay together. All right, power to the people. Okay, I stopped recording. I mean, definitely not live on Facebook, so. Okay, it says it's still recording on my computer, but maybe mine is messed up. No, it is recording.